Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The reading will continue with Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. Thank you. Good morning. Let me uh, add my welcome. Uh, My name is Matt. If we've not met, let's pray together as we look at Matthew 26. Our Father, we read here that the, there were many different reactions and responses to the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that as we come and consider your word, your spirit would be at work amongst us so that we would respond rightly to him. Not missing who he is, not undervaluing him, but seeing him as the one of supreme value and worth. We ask it for his name's sake. 
Amen. A hundred quid a month and two hours a week. No, maybe, maybe too much. Um, uh, twice a year and ten quid when I go. How much is Jesus worth? How do you put a value on that? How much is Jesus worth? Everyone has their price, so we're told. Uh, but so how do you value how much Jesus is worth? A visit to church twice a year, a tenner? hundred quid a month? A couple of hours a week? I mean, where, where, how do you decide? What sort of value do you put upon Jesus? The one through whom all things were made, who rules over all things. How, how do you, how much is he worth to you? Everyone has a, a price on their head, or is uh, everyone's worth a certain amount? Um, the highest ransom ever paid, I looked that up this week, uh, the highest ransom ever paid was $135 million. It's quite a lot of money, isn't it? Uh, that Li Xing, billionaire, uh, Chinese billionaire Li Xing, paid for his son. And that was back in 1966. So you had a bit of inflation. That's a lot of money. $135 million paid as a ransom. Obviously, he valued his son. Well, who wouldn't value their son? I then did a little bit of more scrutiny. And at the time, he was worth uh, about $25 billion. So actually, sort of half of 1% of his total worth is how, which is actually, you think, well, half of 1% of my total worth. Well, actually, I think my son's worth a bit more than that. Uh, but anyway, that's what the kidnappers put. 100, that's one individual, 135 million. How much is Jesus worth? I mean, he's God. And Christians know that he's died for them. So how much is he worth? I mean, how much do you value your own life? Uh, the Department of Transport values you at £1.3 million. Did you know that? You can't cash yourself in, uh, and nor can your spouse cash you in and get £1.3 But that's when they're devising road schemes, and is it worth doing this? Well, let's see how many people die a year, times by £1.3 Is that less than the cost of, uh, well, we won't bother with the cost of the project. So you've got to, that's what you're worth. How much is Jesus worth? Presumably if he's died to save millions and billions throughout history, he's worth more than that. How much is he worth? Matthew 26, you get two very different answers. Judas, well Judas thinks Jesus is worth a few coins, a few quid, not much more than that. The woman, unnamed here, happy to blow a year's wages in one extravagant gesture a whole year's salary, boom, uh, in a sort of ten-second gesture or, or a bit more than that. How much is Jesus worth? He's worth everything. Now, we then we return today to Matthew's Gospel. And uh, between now and Easter, really, these uh, last three chapters, chapters 26 to 28, uh, some will know we started uh, be- beginning of Matthew's Gospel back in 2008, so it's taken us a little while off and on to uh, get there. So this will be quite exciting for me, if not for you, to uh, to get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, seven years off and on. And uh, if you have been here, you'll be familiar. There are five main teaching blocks in Matthew's Gospel, uh, and they all end with this same little 
little summary phrase. You get it here in chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things. That always concludes a block of teaching uh, uh, for Matthew. As we've come to the end, uh, 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 chapter 25, the end of the, uh, the, the fifth major block. So Jesus' teaching is over. And these last three chapters, they're his work. They're not an epilogue in any sense to the teaching. It's all been building to this. Because his death and resurrection are the heart of the Christian faith. They're the culmination of his work. And herein lies the, the heart of Christianity, the power to respond to all his teaching. And we'll see in this section over the next few weeks, chapters 26 to 28, Matthew loves his contrasts. He loves putting up two people side by side and saying, hey, what do you learn when you compare him with her and him with him? He loves doing that. And so there are a few contrasts um, uh, here this morning, even in this uh, opening section. We're going to spend most of our time overwhelmingly on Judas and the woman, uh, Judas's uh, sort of calculating religion. Uh, versus the woman's extravagant faith. But briefly, the section gets introduced uh, in these first five verses. Uh, there's a contrast here between uh, Jesus, he's the, the sovereign Lord, contrasted with the stealthy priests. There's Jesus, the sovereign Lord, in control of his destiny, versus these stealthy priests and plotters. And I think Matthew puts this here because this is again going to be one of the underlying little emphases of uh, of these three chapters. Both that Jesus was in control of his destiny, going to the cross for the salvation of sinners, but also that there was wicked men responsible for his death. And those two things keep ebbing and flowing uh, throughout this section, both true. Chapter 26, verse 1 then. Uh, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title from Daniel 7, the one who reigns over all, is going to die. Fourth time, Jesus has predicted his death. And he says, oh, just a few days. If you're a Bible reader, you're used to that. But of course, it is extraordinary. The one who says, the one who reigns, the Son of Man, is going to be handed over to his death. I'm about to, we're in this uh, relentless and slightly tedious election campaign at the moment, uh, which will only grow uh, in our consciousness and awareness. But imagine, you know, before May the seventh, the election, or May the first, perhaps. No, he wouldn't do that as bank holiday. Uh, but a couple of days before the election, say, I don't, I don't, it's not a political point in any sense. But say, David Cameron stands up and says, after May the seventh, I will be prime minister over a pretty extraordinary coalition of parties. Uh, I'll become that on May the 7th, and two days later I'll be assassinated by a group of disgruntled MPs. It doesn't quite work, and some of you may be sympathetic, but don't, don't go there with that. But that would be an extraordinary thing to predict. That the MPs that he, in a sense, represents, in a sense, leads, would be so disgruntled that they'd assassinate him. And that he would predict it days in advance, obviously, would be an extraordinary thing. But that's what we've got here. Jesus says, oh, in a couple of days, I'll be murdered by people who should know better. He knows his future. He is in control 
of his future. But by contrast, you've got the stealthy priests in verses 3 to 5. Then, verse 3, then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot amongst the people. So here we've got the combined leadership of Israel, it is as if after this week of being grumpy with one another, the, sort of the government and the bishops have put their differences aside and said, let's come together. And they've had their, they've, uh, they've decided to combine against Jesus. But they're nervous, they're fearful, they're sly, they've got a problem. They want him dead, but they don't want a fuss made. It's the Passover. Jerusalem's going to swell by four or five times. And Jesus is the big name. We don't want to assassinate Usain Bolt during the Olympic Games. He's like the biggest name and everyone will know to. You don't do it then when the focus of the world is upon him. Look, we need to be careful here. Jesus is, you know, he's the big name at the moment. We want to be careful how we kill him, but we definitely want him dead. So we've got a problem. How do we do this? Oh, we'll see in a moment. Judas will be the answer. But you see this comparison, Matthew, straight away <clears throat> at the beginning of this section is setting up. Jesus. He's the sovereign Lord in control. By contrast, you've got these stealthy priests. They want to kill him, but well, how do we do it? Well, I don't know. How are we going to get around this? Well, the people will be up to date. Okay, that contrast set up. But here's where we're going to spend our time then. The, the woman and Judas and the rest of this section, 14, excuse me, verse 6 down to verse 14. And the contrast is a simple one. How do you value Jesus? The woman valued Jesus extravagantly. Judas uh, values Jesus cheaply. That's the contrast. Let's just take them in turn then. First, the woman, verse 6 to 13. The woman valued Jesus extravagantly. That's the point of it. She valued Jesus extravagantly. Now, verse 6 is a very pleasant dinner party. Verse 6. When Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, well, he can't still be a leper because no one would have gone there. He'd have been quarantined. This is probably someone that Jesus has healed, but this is now his nickname, which is a nice nickname. They went to the, they went for dinner. Where are you going for dinner tonight? Oh, the house of Trevor the Tumor, Peter the Hernia. It's that sort of thing. They've gone to Simon's house. But the focus, of course, is upon the woman. What's she doing there? Culturally, men should be dining together. She's either a servant or she's a gatecrasher. But the focus, the emphasis is not actually upon her in verse 7, but what she's carrying. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume. The adjectives are slightly piled up here. She came in and Matthew says she's really carrying something. It's really expensive. It's a, it's an alabaster jar. That's not just your normal clay pot. It's just a bit more expensive. Perfume. I elsewhere, Mark will tell us it's nard. Very, very expensive. You have to import that from Nepal. That's costly to get that to Israel. Very expensive. And she, she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. It's not an insult, of course. You know, 
someone comes in here today and throws something over your head, that's, you know, they don't like you very much, they're grumpy with you. But of course, culturally, by the order, at the times of the day, you'd go for dinner at someone's house and they would perfume you in different ways. Could be a dab, could be a little uh, blob on your head, which slowly sort of melts into your hair. But you know, it's just to make the whole mealtime a little more pleasant, fragrant. But here, this is not just a little dab, this is wildly generous. An alabaster jar, you've got to smash it, cut it at the neck to open it. This is not your Chanel number five, which, you know, you take the lid off and do a little dab here and there and put it back. And, you know, you only use it on special occasions when your husband takes you out for dinner and it lasts 20 years. It's not that sort of, um, uh, you know, you just, once it's open, it's done. It's, you know, it's like opening a bottle of wine. Its value plummets. You just drink it. You've got to do it there and then. That's, so this is very generous indeed. Now we're told elsewhere, Mark 14, that this is a year's wages worth of perfume. Now, probably, presumably, some, there's some amongst us who care deeply about perfume and scent, but a year's wages on one bottle that you chuck on on one night? A year's wages. Whatever that may be if you're newly qualified. 26k or so as a teacher, 30k or so in IT, 60k or so for a newly qualified solicitor. What's a year's salary? Extraordinary. It takes a long time to save that up, doesn't it? Or is this a family heirloom that she's got? She inherits 50k from Aunt Mabel and blows it in one extravagant gesture. It's a bit odd in one sense. Uh, okay, my, uh, my research this week's been extensive for your good. Uh, here's the most extensive bottle, expensive bottle of wine in the world. Uh, on it, lying on its side, obviously, because it's expensive. You don't want to, you know, sediment, except, you need to make sure it's, uh, uh, kept dry. So there is a Chateau Margaux, 2009. Who'd have thought it, unless you're a Canossa? Uh, that 2009 was the most expensive bottle of wine in the world, but it was sold for 122,000 pounds, 300, sorry, 122, 380,000 pounds. 123,000 pounds. So give it seems simple. That's an expensive bottle of wine. Okay, it's it's a it's a, it's twelve liters, a Balthazar for those who who like their terms. It's a big bottle of wine, obviously. That's a lot for one bottle of wine. And imagine then this morning someone says, "Oh, do you know what this is? What this is? It's a big bottle. Um, it's Chateau Margaux, two thousand and nine. Should we open it? And they open it and pour you a glass." That's it, its value's gone. It's gone then. Apart from obviously, I think 112 litres, we'd all have a little, you know, be like communion wine, you know, you could have, we'd all have a little, uh, bit the most expensive communion service the, uh, the world has ever seen. But, um, but it's all for him. Just this one bottle, cracked open, poured upon Jesus. But it's a year's wages. Wow. It's a very extravagant gesture. Now, the two responses in this, uh, just this little incident here, the disciples and Jesus. You get the disciples, verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this 
waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price than the money given to the poor. Now, I don't know about you, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. My wife tells me I am frugal, or other terms that mean similar to that. (laughs) But a a year's salary... I mean, that could have done a lot of good, whatever it may be, 26K, 50K, 100K, whatever. This, to blow it in one gesture, well, golly, that could have done a lot of good, couldn't it? How about, rather than having a, 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 blowing it in one morning here at church, how about helping those who are unemployed? How about helping those struggling to pay the rent? How about... You know, financing a homeless shelter at Weber Street, you know, for the next few years. It could do an enormous amount of good. I'm not unsympathetic to their observation. But Jesus' response is different. Verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you but you'll not always have me. Now what's he saying? Be careful. Uh, Jesus is not uncaring. When he says the poor he'll always have with you, that's not a dismissive gesture at all. Uh, He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, where uh, Moses is told, uh, you should never have the poor with you. If you obey me, there'll be no poor amongst you, but because you disobey me, you'll always have the poor with you. It's because of their disobedience that the poor are always amongst Israel. I mean, just uh, uh, if you turn back a page, chapter 25, the last of the parables of Jesus' teaching block is the sheep and the goats, where he commends the caring for those who are poor. So, um, I've read it all, of course, but just if you jump into uh, verse 37 of chapter 25, the righteous will answer him, Jesus, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you in sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king, Jesus, will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Oh, look, just a few verses earlier, Jesus has said, oh, you've got to care for the poor amongst you. You've got to, you've got to do that. There's a timeless obligation, Jesus would say, to care for the the poor amongst you. You've got to plant that, build that sort of church where you care for the poor amongst you. You've got to do that. He commends that enormously. You can aim to build that those structures into society. But, but do you see here in chapter 26 and verse 11, the difference is you'll not always have me says Jesus. He'll not always be amongst them. So, it seems to me Jesus is saying, oh, look, plan to care for the poor amongst you. Do do that. Plan and be sensible. But there is also a time and a place for the extravagant gesture. Because you love me. Don't, pit one against the other. Oh, look, disciples, you could have fed the poor yesterday. Just don't have a go at this woman just because she loves me. And she's done this dramatic gesture because she loves me and has given herself because she loves me. 
Yeah, do, do both. Do both. Plan for the poor and caring for them amongst you and your church family. Love me. Demonstrate it. It's good. I love that. It's a very beautiful thing that this woman has done. Did Jesus need this gesture, this oil? No, of course not. That's not how he's been living. He said earlier, the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Presumably they've slept out under the stars. His was never a life of luxury. But the woman loved him and gave him this beautiful gift. So for you and for me, oh, look, plan how you spend your money. Plan to care for, for those who are struggling amongst us. Yes, of course, we must do that. But sometimes the gesture that says, you, you, I'll give anything for you, Jesus. Or harder than the gesture, the life, which says, oh, I'll do anything for you. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing, says Jesus. I was encouraged. Uh, some will know if you're a ch- member of the church family here, we've had a sort of slight change around, a new uh, treasury team looking after the church finances, uh, and one of the, uh, Mike McGann, who's heading that up, just happened to mention the other day, he said, oh, that, you know, I don't know any, personally, any figures at all, but he said, oh, it's, you know, look, getting my head around this stuff, there's some really lovely generosity. I think he said there's some really neat generosity, which, you know, you get from an uh, American voice. Uh, he said, well, it's amazing to see some of the gifts people give. Uh, Matt, they're, you know, they're great. They're amazing. It's a real encouragement to him, to me, to hear something of that. But not just financially. Jesus would commend us, oh, that the life which says, Jesus, I love you. I love you and I'll give anything for you. That's a beautiful thing. The woman valued Jesus extravagantly. But then by contrast, briefly you get Judas. Judas valued Jesus cheaply. Verses 14 to 16. Judas valued Jesus cheaply. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here's the answer to the problem that the priests have got. Judas, and Judas goes to them and asks for cash. He's got a sort of calculating faith. How much is Jesus worth? Well, not a lot. So let's see if I can sell him. Let's see if I can get some cash. And he gets 30 silver coins. That's not a lot of money. Don't think precious silver. Think shrapnel in your pocket. 30 silver coins is the price you might pay for a slave who's dead, according to Exodus 21, as compensation. In Zechariah 11, verse 12, it's the derisory wages that you pay to a shepherd. It's the cheapest you can get away with. The chief priests say, oh, Judas, you'll give us Jesus, will you? Well, we'll give you a week's pay at minimum wage. 250 quid or something. How about that, Judas? Yeah, that'll be fine. Judas says, yeah, that's what Jesus is worth to me. I'll sell him so you can kill him. 250 quid, that's fine. That's all he's worth. Of course, the striking thing, Judas is one of the twelve. 
Judas has been with Jesus. He's seen what Jesus has done. He's seen these extraordinary miracles. Judas has been told the plot. Four times he's heard Jesus say, do you know what? I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and officials. I'm going to be killed and then I'll rise again. Three, Four times now Judas has heard that uh, in Matthew's gospel. He's heard Jesus say, hey, I can save your soul for eternity in chapter 16. He's heard Jesus say, I will ransom your life from your sin in chapter 20. Judas has heard all of this and he looks on and says, oh, I don't know. I'd rather have a bit of money. And for us, we read this and think, well, we know how it ends. But so did Judas. He'd had the prediction, certainly. But we look at this and think, how do you make that mistake? How do you do that? Judas, you numpty, or worse. How very wicked, of course. But Judas, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, we're not told with great detail. Is Judas just disappointed? Jesus is not the sort of Messiah he'd wanted. Is he worried that the money's running out, that this gravy train is coming to an end? I mean, John would tell us earlier on in his gospel, in chapter 12, that that Judas keeps the money purse and keeps dipping his hand into it. And so if Jesus is saying, the end is nigh, I'm going to die in a couple of days, well, maybe Judas thinks, time to get off this train, the money's running out. Is that what's going on? Certainly here, Matthew seems to indicate money is the driving aspect 14, verse 15, what will I get? What are you willing to give me? How much is it worth? So Judas does a sum in his head and thinks, well, I've heard, I've heard what Jesus is offering. I'm not sure I'm persuaded by that. I'd rather have a bit of cash in my pocket. Jesus is not worth that much. So I wonder, Matthew would say, do you ever do the sum like that in your head? Get quite as blunt as that and ask yourself in your head, what's Jesus worth? I don't know. I I know what Christianity teaches broadly, but my life is fine. Jesus is worth maybe a couple of visits to church, maybe a tenor in a collection plate, maybe that he's worth that, maybe. Well, some of us who are Christians, well, life is pretty good. And Jesus, you know, he gives me a little bit of stuff, you know. Eternity's a long way away, but here and now, what's Jesus worth to me here and now? Well, I don't know, 50 quid a week, a couple of hours a week. That's, that's, that's okay. I'm not sure I'm worth any more than that. The section said, don't do the, don't do the sum like that. Don't, you're thinking like Judas at that point. Can you not see what the woman saw? So before, as we finish, let's just ask that. What, what is it? What is it that she sees that Judas didn't see that makes such a massive difference? You've got the woman who valued Jesus extravagantly. Judas valued him cheaply. What's the difference? Well, let's go back to verse 12. Here's Jesus' Jesus's comment on what she did. Verse 12, the woman, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. That's a fairly extraordinary promise. But verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. 
Did she know she was doing that? We're not told. It's certainly Jesus' interpretation. Now, this is all the wrong way around, of course. Normally, someone would die, and they'd have their body prepared for burial afterwards, you know, wrapped up, go, you know, uh, uh, spiced up, etc. Um, has you know, the spices applied. The only people who wouldn't have that done after their death were criminals. They'd just die and be thrown in a pit. So it seems Jesus is saying, that no, she, I, she's preparing me for death. I won't get the normal burial rituals. Is Jesus suggesting here that she's preparing him for the criminal's death? Because that's the only one he's going to have. Is Jesus saying that her extravagance is because more than anyone else here, she gets what he's about to do. She gets that here is a man who can take away her sin. She gets that here is one who would die a horrible death so that she could live his life of glory. She seems to get that. And so for her, oh, Jesus is worth everything. Uh, years ago, I was invited to dinner. Uh, back in 2003, I was invited to a dinner in uh, honour of this man, Captain Rambadahor Limbu. Uh, that was not what he looked like. That's what he looked like uh, back in... Uh, the 1960s, uh, by the time I met him uh, a decade or so ago, he'd enjoyed food a little bit more. Uh, but um, I was invited for a dinner in honour of him uh, because it was at Sandhurst, the, uh, the, the military academy. He's one of the very few living recipients of the Victoria Cross. Obviously the highest military medal for valour that you can receive for valour in the face of, of the enemy. And uh, the reason he got his was back in 1966 uh, 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 when Indonesia invaded uh, Borneo. Uh, He and his men, his uh, little group, were exposed. Uh, They encountered three machine gun points, uh, pinning them down. And uh, he took out one with a grenade. uh, And then two of his men, either side of him, the two machine gunners, were shot. And then you can read the the entry, why he received his uh, medal. For the next 20 minutes, he took one on his shoulders and carried him back to a British lines so he could receive attention. He crawled back to the front, took another one, and carried him on his back. And so the, uh, the citation reads, for 20 minutes he was exposed to enemy fire and flak. Just took these guys back so they could be safe. They managed to unjam their machine guns and stormed up the hill and took out the enemy post. It was a pretty horrible, it was one of those sort of really magnificent where eagles dare, you know, uh, sort of thing. But of course he gets it for, well, for 20 minutes he was completely exposed to save the lives of two others. Uh, and so a few years later he received from the Queen his Victoria Cross. The people value his action differently. Very sadly, a year after uh, he'd received his Victoria Cross, he, he was on, on a train in India, and all his medals were nicked. And so he lost it. Well, well in one sense, thievery is never a good thing, but I guess someone nicked it and thought, well, there's a few shiny things, I can get a few quid for them. They didn't know who Captain Limbu was. They didn't know what this magnificent man had done. They just nicked his food. They didn't value him at all. But the nation valued it. The Queen gave him another one. Follow a year. 
And 40-odd years later, I met him. And I met him at Sandhurst. It was a little dinner. Uh, they were Gurkhas, so curry. Um, but extravagant curry by their... And uh, amongst those at the dinner table were uh, soldiers descended from the men who'd been saved. They valued him. Oh, they honoured him. They spent the whole evening praising him. They're sort of pretty robust characters, Nepalese Gurkhas, but there were tears amongst them because they knew they owed a lot. They owed everything, really, to this man. What is the difference between Judas and this woman? She knows what she owes him. Well, she knows somewhat of who he is. But this woman has seen more truly than the disciples or anyone else that Jesus' love for us, going to the cross, means we owe him everything. I don't know if you ever get rounds to, it's a slightly morbid thing, isn't it? Every so often I daydream about what hymns I have at my funeral. That may just be me. You may not even uh, get round to such a thing. Uh, the problem is there are too many hymns I like, and I think it would be a sort of two-hour two hour affair with an encore of, um, or not of me, that would be odd, uh, but an encore of, of uh, some hymn or other. But of course, you, I mean, one would have to be, when I survey, that's got to be there, hasn't it? We'll sing it in a moment. Love so amazing, so divine, demands on my life my soul, my all. This woman poured out perfume at great personal expense. But we'll see in a fortnight's time, Jesus poured out his life. Chapter 26, verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This woman poured out perfume for a man who was wonderful. Jesus He poured out his life for people who hate him, for people who'd rejected him. How much is he worth? Everything. Oh, he's worth everything. Let's pray together. Father, we find ourselves praying again that... That you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we see Jesus clearly. We don't want to be those who are like Judas, observe him, but value him far, far less than he is worth. We want to be those who are like this woman, who see him and see that he, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who reigns over all, the one who died for us, who call ourselves Christians, that he is of exceptional value. He demands our life, our soul, everything. And he is absolutely worth it. Would we see him for who he is, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.